Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Poor Brittany Ertner has had to put up with me for five days as, uh, as my co-host on, on NBC's coverage of Royal Ascot. I don't know what you've done to deserve this. This is like the, the <laughs> bonus either. prize at the end of the week. No, it's been fun. You know, you, you definitely carried me all the way through the five days, and they were incredible days worth of racing. There's nothing like Royal Ascot. I've said it time and time again, so I'm not going to go through it. But it's been a joy working with you and now being here. You're very kind. Yeah, James is James is looking decidedly uncomfortable. I wonder what you were on about there for a second. <laughs> oh, you? Yes. No, you, you have your moments. Yeah. Yeah. So did it go well? It did go well. And I, I am always struck by the way that the event is received yeah. internationally. It's definitely become a theme, hasn't it, in the last decade or, or so? Well, you two are much better place to comment and contextualise it because you've obviously done top races in America, but it just seems to me that they got everything absolutely spot on from a show business point of view, didn't they? Mm. Just seemed a great show um, from start to finish. The weather maybe was the only thing that... The Russians would have fixed that for them if only they'd had a word. <laughs> <laughs> and it, yeah. it, it, it improved yeah. as the week went on and mm -hmm. ended on a high as well. Yeah. And we've, you know, don't get me wrong, we've delved, all of us in the media, into our trusty treasure trove of Frankie de Tory clichés over the last five days. Mm -hmm. But, James... He is pretty remarkable, whichever way you slice it, isn't he? He's a bloody brilliant rider. He just is. I mean, that's all you can say. I mean, the thing is that sometimes in horse racing it creates false idols because going around on good horses is the most important thing. Mm. But the guy, he's just a phenomenal sportsman. He was the first athlete on horseback that I remember. You know, he just looked like sort of our John Velasquez kind of thing who's, you know, could have competed in other sports as well. He's really quick twitch, quick thinker, all those attributes. And... Um, I think he's a phenomenal, to keep going at his age, absolutely brilliant. Was it you that once said to me, if something looks good, it probably is? No, that was Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> that, was the, the, that was the concept of function and aesthetics the ancient Greeks established. That, it's to do with a horse, isn't it? If you average up every horse, so you know you like when they superimpose kind of faces on top of each other, but if you do it with horses, if you put overlay, like using video technology, a thousand horses and you end up with the average horse, Yeah. The average horse is, the, is our idea of aesthetic beauty. You end up with something that looks like a George Stubbs, except accurate, not like George Stubbs painting. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good point about riding. I think it can be misleading. There are some jockeys who don't look good but are very good. I mean, Kieran Fallon perhaps was a good example of that. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, he combines a lot. And the way that he communicates, Brittany, we have seen it yeah. 
time and time again this week. He's great for the sport. He's not just an incredible athlete. He is a showman. They call him the greatest showman, and that's because he gives his time to the media. He promotes the sport. He energizes that's the right. crowd. There's not mm -hmm. too many people, too many, and I just don't want to say jockeys, just people in general that have that sort of effect on a crowd. When he comes in, the flying dismount that yeah. we're all accustomed to seeing from him, yeah, you got right. from Angel Cordero, actually, it's a roar of the crowd, and they are drawn to him, and so it makes racing almost more exciting because of that. Hmm. And uh, people are always trying to find the next one, but there isn't the next one, I suppose. You can't replicate you that. You can't replicate it, can you, James? I don't know what the elements are. I don't really understand it, what the Dottori thing is in the round. Do you? Really? What, I think it's just Dottori. I mean, he has an aura about himself. He's obviously got incredible talent. He's riding some of the best horses, but you can't replicate that in somebody else. The equivalent I would say we have in the States is Mike Smith, but Mike Smith has a very different personality than Frankie Dottori does, but he is still this incredible rider who is drinking from the fountain of youth, longevity in his career, and he's great for the media. So that would be the only equivalent I could see, but a young yeah. and up-and-coming rider, well, it's tough to find that that spice and that personality. I'm biased because I bet on them heavily, but the, the Flying Ortiz brothers would be my nomination. I think they're absolutely brilliant to watch. Um, but I suppose... Talent-wise, but I don't, you don't have that energy that Dottori has. Right. It's interesting to hear that, isn't it? When you watch someone on TV and you mm. think, I, I just love watching them. I think they're very inspirational riders, both of them, Irad, and uh, I think Ira's my favourite, but the two. And um, could they develop into an American Dottori, do you think? Or do you just, it's just not, not there? I just don't know if it's in their personality to do so. Okay. They're yeah. incredible athletes and mm. extremely competitive, and it's wonderful to hear them yeah. speak about each other because there's a lot of admiration. Jose mm. says that Irad is his idol. Yeah. And he got into racing because of his brother. And yeah. immediately after a race, he said, when we're in it, we're competitive. But at yeah. the end of the day, uh, we support each other. But I'm not quite sure that they have the personality to be that showman or being the jockey that would kind of represent the entire sport. I'm not sure who that could be. Mm. Yeah, I, I think the, the most striking part of the week really was that on Thursday when he went four for four in the first four races, including Stradivarius and the Gold Cup, you felt that he was doing something that no other jockey, however talented, was able to do in terms of both winning on horses perhaps that shouldn't have been winning. I certainly think the Ribblesdale winner falls into that category. And also having that energizing effect on the whole place, which normally has a quite a genteel feel about yeah. it in terms of receiving the winners. Okay, Royal Ascot there's a great atmosphere, but oftentimes people are politely applauding. And Richard Hoyles, who was commentating for ITV, said to me he'd never known anything like it down in front of no. him. The, the, the buzz in the crowd, which was much more earthy and, and visceral than you would normally get at Royal Ascot. Yeah, it's a really good point, this. I mean, speaking personally for a second, Kieran Fallon in his pomp could do it for me. I, mean, I would watch him ride a sequence of races and think to myself I was watching something that was very, very stirring emotionally because I just thought he was someone who connected with the, the whole challenge of riding a race. And certainly his win on Kriskin in the Derby, I think that's the most excited I think of ever been watching a, um, a, a jockey. I think he was, that day was on a, some plane in high, outer space. But this guy can do it more regularly than anybody else, can't he? And, it's kind of like elevating, as you both described, it's like elevating the, the moment. And it's inspiring in Ian's competitors as well, the, you know, the same sort of zeal for winning. It's basically a sense of otherworldly competitiveness, isn't it? You, 
you meet it, you find it in professional golfers as well, and, and anybody that's really driven to actually be the top in their profession, you'll find that same competitive streak. The Tory's got it. Some of the riders don't, do they? I don't know why they don't have it. Do they not? Is it because it's a game based on reputation so much, and maybe you're not outwardly? I don't know why it is, but he's got There's it. There's a fine line between cockiness and confidence. There is. Perhaps that's there something is. that they don't want it's to get point. even close to. It's an excellent point. It's a very conservative atmosphere as well. Mm. You're right. And Dottori can show that outwardly, can't he? Like the bit where he walked through that hedge, which I think he'd probably want back. He like, he like we a, saw that. What, is, what was he doing? I mean, he just looked like a complete prat there, didn't he? I mean, what was he doing? He was just he was making thinking. it his home. But then again, you forgive him because yeah. he's him. Whereas yeah, if it was someone else, you would think, just learn to behave. Something. But it was, one of the, it was one of yeah. those days, wasn't it, where yeah. uh, he... There was something slightly biblical about it. Yeah, exactly. Why exactly. go round the hedge? I can actually walk through a hedge. Nobody just else completely can walk through a hedge. He, I can But walk he gets away it. with it because he's him, and he, he deserves to get away with it. With he's, the he's career, a brilliant bloke. Yeah, he's, with the career that he's had, yeah. has he always been like this? So in his Pretty younger much. years, when he wasn't established, was he able to <laughs> get away with that? So it's always been <laughs> a very Frankie. good question. I can't remember. Uh, is that right? What, what do you think? I think again, sort of, if you look at his career through the, the early '90s, it was everyone loves this guy. He's suddenly become a national celebrity, and actually, his his, his national celebrity status was at peak then when he went through the card at Ascot mm -hmm. in 1996, and he was presenting Top of the Pops and and whatever, and launched his luxury range of ice creams and pizzas and what have you, and, and everybody knew who he was. Now, racing is not as close to the psyche as it was then, and so therefore he possibly isn't. But but it's easy to forget that he then. Was on the he was that close to his career going down the sinkhole. Oh yeah, I mean that yeah. close to it completely disappearing. Well, his story without is trace. Isn't it? I mean, the public don't actually; they just see the the showman. But the, his story is amazing, isn't mm -hmm. it? It's had its ups it's and a downs. Long story to say the very, very least. <laughs> he's had a real roller coaster life, and uh, I suppose the fact he's lived it in the public eye and he lives, it, you know, wears his emotions on his sleeves makes people in, warm to him. And, and uh, Brittany used the, the phrase drinking from the fountain of youth. I'm, I grew up watching the, the later years of, say, Willie Carson, for example. Well, with all due respect to Willie, who was a brilliant rider, his career lasted a long, long time, you know, well over 30 years. Yeah. But, you know, he, he looked as though he'd been riding for, for 30 years when he, when he finished his career, or 35, 40 yeah. years. And he said it as much in, a, in an interview I did with him the other day. Frankie's been riding for 30... You know, you know, nearly 35 years now. <laughs> it doesn't look like it. No, it's incredible to think he's been riding mm -hmm. for this long and how many accomplishments he has. And it doesn't mm -hmm. seem that he's approaching retirement anytime soon. Uh, why would he? It's the same thing we talk about with Mike Smith. Mike Smith considered retirement mm -hmm. a few, few years ago. And then comes Arrowgate and Songbird and, of course, Justify, Unique Bella, yeah. all of these horses that, you know, keep him going. And why would you want to retire when you're still on a high? Yeah. And you need the people to keep you going as well. And without John Gosden, that would have been pretty unlikely. Absolutely. Yeah, they're a great combination. Back to Mike Smith for a second, if I may, though. And, uh, you know, the interview you did with him in Dubai stuck with me. Because he has become, if he wasn't already, maybe he already was, always was, but he's become a tremendous spokesman for the sport as well, hasn't he? In terms of, he, he's just a classy guy, isn't he? And he makes you sort of, makes you sort of want to think that, it makes racing feel good about itself by listening to him say, talk about the whip and mortality and stuff like that. Frankly, does it a different way, doesn't he? He doesn't get involved in the profundities of the game and it kind of maybe helps us escape them that way. Mm. Whereas kind of Mike Smith is an example of a human who attaches, attaches himself to those things head on mm -hmm. 
and can explain them. Frankie kind of makes us forget them, if you see what I mean. It's a subtle difference, but I feel it's an important one for both of them. And he feels he's a representative of the sport and wants to yeah. do his part. He, it's given him so much, and he wants to give back by not only educating the public, yeah. but being such a strong promoter of it. Uh, classy he, is the best way to describe him. He's man. incredibly yeah. humble. Mm. And you see... If you notice, Mike Smith, after every single race, he points the horse towards the big screen and he raises his helmet and looks up to the sky. He's very grateful for all of the opportunities he's been given. Yeah. He'll say each and every interview after he wins a race, he's blessed to be here. He doesn't take a day for granted and he's no. such a strong promoter of he the sport does. because of it. Yeah, a, a great moment involving Frankie was his victory in the Norfolk Stakes on Al Ali, which it reunited him with Simon Crisford. And that was a great moment of togetherness, wasn't it? I kind of latched onto that and the kind of the people involved, the owners, what was interesting there, it wasn't picked up on the TV channel I was watching, but all of the different owners and hangers-on of that horse all came up and rubbed the horse's nose with their hand, one after each other. And that connection with the horse, which isn't played out often, you know, it's particularly, it's seen that some of racehorse owners, these kind of like, you know, guys that see horses as commodities. And it was a great moment that was watching it. I thought there's a great the horse can do that, can't it? And it can inspire in people these sort of qualities of of being great jockeys or loving the moment for, for what it is. Owners are getting a bit of a a raw deal, I think, in terms of their PR at the moment. I think there's a, a narrative that's developing, which I think is wrong. That essentially owners are simply filthy rich people who use their use their racing interest as, a, as an appendage, essentially, or a, an extension of their wealth. And, and that's not always the case. A lot of them are very fond of their horses, and, and, and the reason they play money into the game is because they happen to like them. I think what it is, Brittany, is that some own, they, they become fond of their horses because they can't stop themselves becoming fond of their horses, can they? And that's that, you know, you're someone that grew up very close to the game. That's basically what horse racing does. They aren't objects to which we attach our affection. Their objects are inspiring us, that connection. I think it's that way around. Horses are the reason that we're in this game. You don't see trainers wake up at 4 in the morning and sometimes leave at 7 p.m. if they didn't fully enjoy what they do. Just speaking on behalf of my father, mm. it, whenever we're, say, on vacation, the first thing he wants to do when he comes back yeah. is go see his horses because yeah. this is what brings him joy. He loves getting to know all the little nuances about them, their personalities. And I think, you know, owners aren't being fairly represented because if you speak with any owner, they'll tell you that we're not in this game to make money because you almost never do. We're in it for the love of the horse and the love of the sport. Yeah. Well, Frankie Dottori no doubt won Royal Ascot. <laughs> Who won Royal Ascot? Frankie Dottori. But there were other winners as well. And one of those yeah. was Danny Tudhope. Mm -hmm. And in essence, his week was just as remarkable for different reasons. He had far fewer rides. He had four winners and three place horses from ten rides. Now, that is quite extraordinary. He rode for a variety of different trainers. He went very close to winning the Diamond Jubilee as well on mm -hmm. Dream of Dreams. And we were being asked, Brittany, all week by our bosses. <laughs> who is Danny Tudhope? Exactly. <laughs> it, which, uh, but, it, you know, everybody here knows he's a guy who's just ridden his thousandth winner. He's now ridden four winners at Royal Ascot and he didn't even ride there on one of the days. He's ridden winners abroad and he is, with no disrespect to him, chiselled his way into people's consciousness as one of the best. I think momentum 
has a lot. Well, you saw Frankie's momentum. And when jockeys get on this role and they have this confidence, I think it begins to show and the horses begin to feel that. I know that might sound silly, but... It, I have a different take on yeah. it. I think it's a coincidence. <laughs> I think it's because I think it's down to physical. The physical world is where we should start with explanations. And then maybe we can move on to... The physical world is that he got the tempo of the track right, didn't he? A lot of his colleagues were going off way too fast in virtually every race because it was obviously cut in the ground and an amazingly stiff track. And he's... He's quite patient, isn't he? Don't you think that's his hallmark mm. as a rider compared to a lot of um, riders who grow up riding sort of cheap horses where you've got to kind of get on with it because they won't respond? Or he's, he's got a sort of classy way of riding, I've always felt. And would you say he has a strong internal clock? Yeah, I would definitely. I would definitely. It's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, I think he, he, he was a fa he's a big favourite of the jockey ratings because as he, as he, what happens with riders is, to, to begin with, they don't get any decent rides and that... One way to tell whether they're any good is to subtract from the number of winners they should have ridden the number of winners they actually did ride, and you're left with the residual, which is their talent. And he was one who always over-accomplished on cheap horses, and he's ridden for really smart connections like um, Midland Park and mm. people like that in the north of England, and uh, this is what he deserves. He's, he's a top rider. I'd suggest that Danny Tartope also is not one to blow his own trumpet, and he joins us on the line now. So, Danny, I'd, I'd imagine you're probably blushing down the other end of the line as, as James and Brittany are, shower, are showering you with praise. Well done on a terrific week. Hi, Nick. Thanks very much. Yeah. I just, you know, ju just reflect on it a little bit for us from a, from a personal perspective and, and uh, sort of how you, how you feel now having accomplished what you have. Um... Yeah, listen, it's been a fantastic week, first of all. Um, I'm still trying to get to grips with it, really. Um, never expected to have four winners there at our last got, so um, it's been um, overwhelming, really, and yeah, it's been fantastic. And going into the week, what were your what were your expectations? You'd obviously picked up a nice ride here, a, a nice ride there, but what realistically could you have hoped for? Yeah, well, I, I thought, you know, the first two days um, I had some nice rides and, um, and they weren't without chances, all of them. Um, obviously, Lord Britons in the Queen Anne was, you know, he, he, he's been consistent, you know, for the last few years in Group 1 and um, that minor division. So he wasn't without a chance. I mean, he knew he was in good form and we were just glad we could uh, deliver and finally win it. That must have been very special for you, the win on Lord Glitters. As you said, he'd had a lot of chances in that division. You also rode the winner for, for David O'Mara. Without the tie-up with David, for whom you, you rode Mondi at least to many great successes as well, uh, where do you think you'd be? Um, not where I am now, that's for sure. Um, you know, I'm in a good place now. I'm riding good horses. And, yeah, if it wasn't for David, um, life would probably be a bit harder for me. But, you know, he's given me opportunities and the chance, and, uh, you know, I've been able to deliver. You rode a, a couple of winners for for William Haggis as well. Uh, Dave was tremendously impressive on the first day and a wonderful training performance from him at the second day as well to get his filly back off, off such a long absence. Then you, you took a break and went to, to Ripon via, via, via Chelmsford City. When you were, when you were taking the break from, from Royal Ascot because you didn't have any book rides that day, what, what was going through your head, Danny? What were you thinking about the, the vagaries of being a jockey in this country and how, how hard you sometimes have to work for relatively little reward? Um, well, that's it. There was a lot of travelling involved, and obviously having to go to Chelmsford after Royal Ascot on the Wednesday, 
um, it's not ideal really, but you know, this is this is what you have to do. You have to go where um, where you're told to go really, and you know, you've, you've got no say in it sometimes. You always seem to me very grounded and, and not one to get too carried away with the with the emotion of the moment. But are you hoping that this will will push your career to the next level still? Yes, of course. Yeah, um, I think the more success you have, the more you want. You know, you need to move on, take that step forward again, and um, keep showing people that you're capable of doing at, at this level. So we're doing okay so far. You're doing more than okay so far. You're doing extremely well. I don't. You were probably listening when when James and, and Brittany were d discussing, you know, what what has made you so successful, and and they th their sort of joint view in a sense was that your your sense of patience and timing and uh, having a, a good I internal clock were, were were very important. Is that are, are those things you feel are key attributes of of the way your career has developed? Um, I think so. You know, you have to adapt to a lot of things. Um, every and so you need to know what you're doing. So yeah, you need a, a good clock in your head and, and get trying to get the fractions right. So I, I you know I think I'm pretty good at that. And you know it doesn't matter whether you're in front of the race or holding up. I think you have to you have to really know what you're what you're doing and what you're on. And has has that ambition to get to where you are now always burned quite bright, or did you think earlier in your career that you you were sort of settling for something a bit further down the down the pecking order? No, you never settle for that. You you always want more. So um, you just need the opportunities, and when the, the big trainers come calling for you, it's you know it's, it's great, isn't it? and especially at these big meetings, this is. This is where you want to be in your uh, career. So, you know, um, I'm looking forward to the future as well, you know, see what that has to, to, to offer. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. The lovely thing about Royal Ascot is it's sometimes not just about the superpowers and there are so many more intricate chapters that are worthy of another read and one of those was the success for Charlie Fellows with thanks be I'm delighted to say Charlie Fellows joins us now in the Luck on Sunday studio. It's taken me a long time to get you here. You were just waiting for the Ascot winner. <laughs> it has, it has, it has. I think this is the fourth time I've been asked. But there are other times, well, one I was in Australia <laughs> yeah. after the Melbourne Cup, one I was in Dubai after the winner. So there were two legitimate excuses. I can't remember what the other one was. See, globe-trotting star, all these good horses. Uh, <laughs> the Royal Ascot win is important for any trainer, particularly when you keep being described as young, up-and-coming, upwardly mobile, etc. All those things that tend to infuriate trainers who aren't 74 years old. Yeah. It's, um, it has been... I love Ascot as well. It's, it's the pinnacle of horse racing in this country and probably globally, really. Uh, and for a small yard like mine, who is in a very important stage of its um, sort of development, having a winner this week was, was pretty good timing. Yeah, the timing's crucial, because you've just taken on one of the most historic yards in, in Newmarket, yeah. Bedford House. And I guess, Charlie, with that comes, I mean, it's a beautiful position to be in, but I guess it comes with attendant pressure as well, doesn't it? It's, it's such a well-known place. Very much so, very much so. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be there in this beautiful, lovely, incredible facility uh, training you know, poorly. I want to. I want to be there and be doing a good job. And people to say he should. Yeah, he's a, he's the next 
big thing and he deserves to be in the yard like that and hopefully in however many years time we'll look back and, and I will have made a good fist of it and, and carried on what Luca was doing. Um, last week, well, Thursday, Friday was a, was a good start. When you get out of bed now and walk around that yard, how do you feel in the morning? Do you, c can you own that confidence to say, I'm, I'm one of the big guns now? Uh, no, I definitely wouldn't go that far. Uh, no, I pinched myself. I walk around <laughs> and I still can't believe that we're in such a stunning yard. Um, we have got a long way to go. You know, I, I, I'm, I have ambitions to be, you know, I want to train the best and have the best pedigrees and quality over quantity is something that I've always said, I, you know, is what I want to aim at. And we are a long way from that. I'm on my way and we're doing pretty well so far. But um, no, I definitely say we're not there yet. We've got a long way to go. I'm always fascinated because uh, you meet so many different trainers, so many different personalities and characters. And every person who trains racehorses seems to have a different, slightly different reason for wanting to do it. And they get a kick out of it for slightly, in slightly different ways. What, what motivates you, do you think, mainly? Um, first, well, two th I, I love working with horses. You know, I'm, that is my passion. I, um, I, I, st I don't know why I, I didn't grow up with horses, um, but I seem to have a relatively good knack of understanding them and getting inside their heads. So I really, really enjoy that, and I enjoy the psycholo psychology of training racehorses, which I think is a major, major part of my job. Um, I've also got a bit of an ego. I love going to those big races. I love being <laughs> on the big love days. Yeah. I love, you know, I love walking in after a big winner, and yeah. that is a massive kick. And we have, you know, whatever it is, I'm, tra I'm training at 16% strike rate this year. Uh, so, what is it? 70, uh, 70, um, 84, 84. That's why I train racehorses. <laughs> <'cause I'm a laughs> 84% of my runners get beaten yeah. and you walk away disappointed mm. so um, when you have a big winner and you have a winner you have to enjoy it you have to um, remember it and you have to um, you know the moment I stop enjoying those will be the moment that I hand my license in because it's a really really hard job it's tough it's long hours it's um, a huge amount of stress a lot of the time um, and um, but those those big those moments they make all of that yeah. worthwhile and more. He needs to give himself a little bit more credit. Uh, yeah. Fourteen, fifteen percent—that's doing really well. Consider the public doesn't realize that when you're going up, especially against the major conglomerates of a Coolmore and a Godolphin, fifteen percent is something to be proud of. Uh, you know, coming yeah, from because really it, it's a very competitive atmosphere. One in ten is the average and at the moment. You're not you're early in your career. Yeah. You're winning at one and a half times the average. Well, probably don't have one and a half times the resources of everybody There's else. always hunger to yeah. do better, of course, but yeah. that's something to be proud of. And also, the, the challenge to, to get your hands on the horses that you want to get your, uh, want to get, it, it's, is, is probably stiffer than it's ever been. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, I think for young trainers coming through now, it's probably as hard as it's ever been to, mm -hmm. to, to get there. Um, and there's a, there's a, you know, some of the big trainers that, they have massive, massive numbers, and there's a sort of almost there's a slight monopoly on the on the top end. Mm -hmm. So for us young guys coming through, trying to trying to break in there, it's really, really tough. Now I'm 
I'm very lucky. I train for some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful owners and big owners. Uh, and at the moment, I'm sort of, you know, down there pecking order and I have to, you know, I'm very happy with what we get. But I accept that the nicer physicals and then better pedigrees go to the bigger trainers. Uh, but hopefully, um, you know, we'll keep on knocking away and sooner or later we'll, we'll, we'll go up that pecking order. I'm quite interested in what you say about animal husbandry and your, your sort of natural affinity for for horses and, and sort of trying to get into the psychology of it. And I'm, I'm very interested because James, you and I have had this conversation a lot and different trainers do things in different ways and quite a lot like Charlie have built their reputations on being considered to be good horsemen yeah. and others essentially reject that hypothesis and say it's simply a numbers game, I simply follow a formula and it works. It's, it's a, I find it a very interesting yeah. contrast. Charlie, don't you think it's about matching your approach to your ownership base so they appreciate what you're trying to achieve with the horse? So, some, some owners want you to crack on and produce winners for them at Royal Ascot with yeah. two yards, and other ones are owner breeders. How do you, would you describe yourself? Absolutely, completely agree. Mm. You've got to do what the owners want. Some owners, they just want to have a day out. They don't really mind where they go. Yeah. They love going racing, whether it's Lingfield, wherever. Um, some owners are not interested in that. They want to have stakes horses, they want pedigrees, yeah. they're there for breeding, mm. and therefore you wasting their money and their time with something that might win a naught to 75 somewhere not is not what they want, yeah. even though it might win a race. Yeah. So you have to be, you know, you have to accept that that horse needs to move on and someone else might win with it, but that's not what the owner wants. Yeah, I have a, um, I think with horses, um, the way I look at it is that you have, you have three different groups of horses. You have the, the top bracket, yeah. who no matter how badly I train them, <laughs> they are always, <laughs> always, always gonna want to win a race. Yeah. Yeah. They are, have that mentality. And elite, in the wild, elite athletes. Exactly. Yeah. Then you have the group right at the bottom. No matter how beautifully <laughs> I train them, they will never, ever want a race. They will always be lazy. They will, in the wild, they will be the ones at the back who are happily follow all day long. Yeah. And then you have that massive group in the middle. Yeah. And that's where us trainers earn our money. Because they're the ones that go, could go either way. Mm. And if I push them too hard, too early, before they're ready for it, they could sort of drop down to that bottom group. Or if I'm patient and I wait and I bring them on when they're ready to come on, they turn into those that want to race and love racing. These are gonna either be the class two horses or the class five horses. Exactly. And there, there is not much difference fundamentally ability-wise between them, is there? No. Between those? No, but I, I don't think there's much difference between all, you know, you, you, you get horses that are limited um, ability-wise that just love racing. Mm. You know, just because, just because they absolutely love racing, they want to be, it doesn't mean they're going to be really good. But what, I'm, what I mean is that no matter how badly I train yes, them, no, I get it. they would still want to win. There's a huge, and they might, there's you know, a huge they, difference in America here though, Brittany, isn't there? Because a man in America or a woman can, could just go along, can't they, and start up at a track and buy themselves a claim a few horses and away you go. But the barriers to entry here are massive compared to that, aren't they? Well, I find it interesting because the challenges that trainers face in America, I think, would be a little bit different than here. Mostly you have, as you mentioned, the horsemen, the true horsemen that really love waking up every morning and being with their horses. But you also have to have, to get the owners, a matter of being able to, and I hate to place it this way, sell yourself almost. You have to have that personality to be able to get yeah. certain owners. Mm -hmm. And it varies. You have owners that, again, uh, just love to enjoy the day and then you have other owners that want to be really successful and this is yeah. almost a business for them. So it's 
difficult for some trainers, say, who just love working with the horses but don't necessarily have it in them to grab the owners and put themselves out there and showcase themselves. That's difficult. Um, yeah. Do you find those same challenges here, yeah, having we, to have a little bit of both? Yeah, because it's we, I, I, the other thing is it's entertainment industry. You yeah. know, there are, a lot of owners are not coming in to make money. They come in to have fun. Yeah. Right. And they don't want a trainer who, you know, a lot of them want their trainers to go racing. They want to have a drink with them at the race. They want to come and see the yard. You know, they love that social aspect to it as well. And, you know, if if the trainer's not on the phone or you know just doesn't want to be any part of that then that you know owners will be like this is not why we came into it i think this is one of the many things that has made bob baffert so incredibly successful he's mm. Yeah. an elite trainer perhaps the best dirt trainer of all time but he also has this ability mm, to people. connect with his mm, owners mm. To, con to connect with the, the media yeah. and that's why people are so drawn to him not only because yeah. he's so incredibly talented but just who he is as a man. And we'll be hearing from the ultimate exponent of that later in the programme with a feature-length interview with, with Gay Waterhouse, who you know, Charlie, and, and have spent time with. Yes, yeah, she came round, she came to the yard the other day. Um, oh. Came and had a look. Um, Crikey. Yeah. I hope she gave you warning, did she? No, I literally, <laughs> I got that five minutes warning. I got five, literally, um, she came with um, the Stanleys, because they have a filly in our mm -hmm. yard. Uh, and, um, you know, she's, she's great. She's an amazing woman. You know, we talk about auras. We were talking about Frankie Dettori earlier. I feel like Gaya Waterhouse is similar. I've only had the opportunity to meet her once. And in that five minutes of meeting her, I felt like we were best friends because she has this energy about her. Yeah. Uh, it's w wonderful to, to be around even in those five yeah, minutes. I can't yeah, imagine yeah. truly knowing her. And yeah. to, to adapt Charlie's point. Um, point about categories of horses, as a trainer, you can either be good fun, very good, or both, but definitely not neither. If you're neither fun <laughs> nor getting results, then the end is nigh, I'm afraid. That's about the size of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't be ruthless, though, can't you? You can, you can be a ruthless, sort of serious-minded operator and succeed. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you can do it like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be fun. No. Nope. Um, but it helps, I suspect, doesn't it? Yeah. It no, no, definitely. And, and yeah. Um, yes, 100%. Mm. You know, as long, but you but you've got to get results, and if you get results, then people, you know, people, but you attract a certain type of owner. How difficult is it for you to do what the old fashioned trainers did when they nurtured families, so they became associated with uh, owner breeders' families, and they got to know pedigrees, and they became known as specialists, and you know, and the, the breeders kept going back to them because they wanted them to to nurture the families, and they had an understanding of what that required, like getting some black type or as simple as that or just giving a horse plenty of time when it needed time because you understood the pedigrees. Can, can you do that now? Can somebody do that now or the superpowers too? No, 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 definitely and you know as, as long as you train for an owner breeder then and you do a good job then yeah, you're going to yeah. keep and I'm you know I'm still this is year six so we're early stages and I'm just starting to build up relationships with certain families yeah. obviously I've trained for Mr Oppenheimer since um, the yeah, he sent me a horse in my first year, yeah. so I'm just starting to, you know, learn about his families, and we get, you know, siblings uh, regularly. Um, I suppose a family that I probably know best uh, is Mir Tesoro's family, who's owned by Darren Pearson, yeah. who um, I've had three siblings now out of that, and um, she's she was amazing for the yard, what she achieved. Um, she's actually coming back into training, which is in, sad because she lost her foal. She was in mm -hmm. foal. Um, 
to Australia, I think, uh, and she slipped it. So she's coming back into training in a couple of weeks' time. Mm. I'm going to see if we can pick it. I don't know whether we will. She's she, been an amazing story. She was, I mean, she, she was amazing. She came rated 57, uh, and she finished up finishing second in a group two, which was remarkable. She, she, she's, she's essentially a sort of living em embodiment of a, of a Charlie Fellow sales pitch, isn't she? I mean, if you could have her <laughs> as a, you could just trot her to up and down Newmarket <laughs> High Street with, with, with that written all over her. Yeah. It, it, that, that's, that's about as good as it's going to get, isn't it? Yeah. And she, uh, you know, she was, um, she was, she was great and she fitted the way I trained as well because she was a horse that came from another yard and she just, didn't look right and we took our time and we were mm. patient with her and she just blossomed and then we thought she'd found her level and she got beaten a couple of times in handicaps and then out of the blue another so 20 pounds of improvement came out and she Brilliant. turned into a stakes horse so she was great she was a lovely filly i wonder how high thanks b is going to go should we talk to hayley turner yeah let's do it hayley good morning good morning and congratulations again you never made it to newmarket did you friday night i don't think no, the traffic. <laughs> we did see the champagne flowing. <laughs> yeah, after yeah, you... it... go on. I rang, I rang George Scott and um, Phil McIntyre um, after I'd um, been in the stewards room, and they were like, "Hayley, we knew when you crossed the line that you weren't going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, we, we've got it covered." I think it's fair enough. It was a richly, richly deserved success. Uh, have you been? Have you been sort of able to bask in the glow of it a little bit? Um, no, I was riding in the 8.45 at Lingfield last night. <laughs> oh, so the glamour. A proper leveller. But um, I've got today off and um, I'm going to drive back to South Bob and take my mum and Nana out for Sunday lunch. Oh. So that'd be nice. Oh, that, Sweet. That, that's, yeah. that's a proper way of spending a, a Sunday yeah. afternoon. And for your, fo your whole family, this must have been an important moment. Because as you said to, as you said to me the other day, it has been... It has been a pretty interesting and not always straightforward journey the last three or four years. No, I, I obviously had a few years off and um, I, I think I needed it because I've come back now and I just, um, I appreciate it all a bit more and I'm enjoying it a lot more, which I think is important. And um, yeah, my family are great though because they just, you know, I'll, as long as I'm happy and I'm enjoying myself, they, you know, they'll just go with it. It was quite funny because no, nobody was there at, at Ascot with me, and um, so I, you know I had to I, I got off, got off the horse and then got on the phone and straight away. So yeah, they they're all buzzing. One thing I did notice though was you did have a, f a few of your old now retired weighing room pals there to, to greet you and how excited they were for you, and it almost felt as though you were striking a blow for them as well as for yourself. Yeah, my friend Laura Pike, I think everyone knows Laura Pike. She actually used to work for Charlie and she was there with a with a load of her mates and friends of mine as well and they made that amount of noise cheering when I was going out onto the track before I'd even won the race. So yeah, you can imagine when I came back in. Uh, but it was a bit yeah, it was really nice to have them there. And you've got an opportunity again to heap praise on the brilliant training of the man on my left who got that horse bang on off a mark of 80 just in your wheelhouse perfectly Hayley. Oh, I know I'm, I'm really lucky because I've, I've never met the horse before and I literally just got her honour in, in the paddock and then I, I tend to get a lot of um, media attention after big wins like this just because I'm a, a female and it's, and it's unusual but, but actually it's Charlie that's done all the work and his team and um, you know they're the ones that 
did all the praise and I just did the staring. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was great. Um, she, she did a bit more than steering, Charlie, to be fair. She did a lot more than steering. <laughs> I don't know how she got to where she did from stool four. She did a great job, yeah. right in the middle, absolute bang behind the speed, yeah. and then weaved her through beautifully. It was, a, it, was a, it was a phenomenal ride. Did you give Hayley many instructions before, before the race? Uh, no, I don't think so. We just said, just take your time. Just weird. Um, just get this done. Yeah, just get <laughs> it done. First. Yeah. yeah. We, were, we were talking about Love Island walking out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, no, it was, yeah. I always feel I ride better for trainers that don't over-analyze, you know, over-analyze yeah. the race and go into detail and, like, do this. If you can't do that, you've got to do this. And, yeah. you know... Sometimes when you're on the horse and the race, how it pans out, and they're confident enough to leave you to it, and um, it seems to work better that way for me. And is it? We talked to Danny Tudhope earlier, and we were talking about his his great patience, which stood him in really good stead at Ascot this week. And it is, you know, you go and stand at the bottom of that straight mile there, and you look up, and it's a lot stiffer than you anticipate. Is is it just that ability to bide your time in a race like this that gives you an extra neck half length? Yeah, I think it is, um, it's, it's a unique track and um, it seems quite straightforward, but you need the horse to, you need the horse as well that appreciates it. So going out, Charlie said, the filly's going to love the track, she's going to love the straight mile, she's going to love the ground. And, you know, some horses don't, some horses want a turning track with a short straight and so obviously you need you need the horse to to appreciate it but yeah I, I think even if they go slow over a straight mile they they tend to quicken a little bit earlier and still don't quite get home so I, I think riding a waiting race there is, is quite important. Um, I've got to ask you about this this whip ban because that's going to garner a few few headlines as well when you passed the post did you think nah, I might be in trouble here? Um, I know to be honest I, I actually it wasn't it did, I was too busy thinking um, oh my god I've just had a Royal Ascot winner <laughs> fair enough <laughs> did, this, yeah, did this actually happen enough. and then you know it, and then after when I went in and watched the replay I was just it was um, yeah I, I, I kind of the stewards had me in and they I, I, I can't I, I mean it was a, quite a severe penalty but you know I am um, the, the whip rules are there for a reason, and if you break them, then you have to you have to deal with it. The filly was she was going forward the whole time. Um, we know what the whips are like; they're not you know, they're padded and they're not um, they're not causing them any pain or anything. And it's just it's just you know it was a it was a little bit of a downer, but it was um, just one of those things, and I'll obviously learn from it. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Gay, lovely to see you here in England again. 7,000 winners, 140 Group 1s, a trainer who's just been inducted into the Sports Australia Hall of Fame at the back end of last year. But I've been told a, a new lease of training life. What spurs you on when you've achieved so much in your career? Well, I suppose I want a longevity, don't I, Nick, as most trainers do. So I met and worked with young Adrian Bott, 
uh, he was uh, extremely intelligent and uh, very um, diligent and had a real feel for the which is important and he came to me and he said uh, if you want to sell your business I have an investor who might buy it and you know I'd like to run it and but he said I want you to stay on I said I'm delighted it sounds fantastic and it was a marriage made in heaven and you've always said that you would never give up you wanted to go training you never wanted to stop and retire and do anything different or essentially get old you wanted to carry on but people don't realize they keep talking about retirement but whether you retire and I have no idea what it's like but if one was to retire the phone stops your standing in people's minds or perception drops and uh, I think it would be a very lonely life. It's nice to be wanted, nice to be wanted, one by my husband and children and grandchildren, but it's also nice to be wanted by Adrian and the team and, and, and the owners. It's, it's very nice. And I'm guessing you're somebody who's always wanted to embrace everything in life rather than say, I'll either do this or that or the other. You're somebody temperamentally, from what I've read and seen, who wants to do this and this and this and this. <laughs> Yes, my daughter Kate says, you're one of those that always say, um, I, what, I wish a FOMA, FOMA, whatever it is, you know, you, you wish that you were doing what you're not doing. And that's me, very much me, you know, I'm thinking, am I missing out on this? <laughs> and you haven't missed out on much. Just tell me about what an honour it was to be inducted into the, the Sports Australia Hall of Fame. It really is the highest accolade for for somebody in, in, in Australia. And, and joining your father, TJ Smith, as one of only five people in the sport of horse racing to, to, to be in that list? It, it was uh, quite, uh, um, it, it, I felt, uh, firstly I was hugely honoured, secondly I, didn't, I thought they'd made a mistake the person when Bruce McAverney rang me, I said look you made a mistake Bruce, <laughs> I don't think you'd be really inducting me and, and it was very, um, you know, you, you felt sort of very humbled. Uh, you know, when you see so many great sports people and, and hear their stories, because of course they interview them on stage, and you're not interviewed by just uh, anyone, you're interviewed by another great sports person who's also achieved all those heights in their own career. Uh, you know, it, it was really a, a very moving time, and Rob and Kate and Tom, our two children, and our friends, that small group of really close friends we had with us and family, were all so moved by it. It was very lovely, really lovely. I was really honoured. And, and everything you've ever done, you've always referenced your father, who was such a legendary figure, and, and with you, whom you had such a, a close bond as his, as his only child. What was it about him that, that made him such a pioneer? Well, he... He came from nothing, Nick, and when you've got nowhere else to fall, you've got that, that's it, the, the, you know, the dirt floor of a Gulgawi shanty that they lived in, you've only got one way. You can't go down, so you have to go up. And he was determined to leave the bush, which he saw as poverty and hard work and a hardship. And he wasn't a man scared of hard work, but he just wanted to get away from the shackles of it. And he, he did exactly that. And it was so funny because the story goes that he, as a little boy, and another little boy sitting on the train from wherever it was in New South Wales, travelling to Victoria, one said, I'm going to be champion trainer, and the other boy said, I'm going to be champion jockey, and because the other boy was George Moore, the famous jockey in Australia. And they teamed up together Very to, much win so. the, to win the derby. No, they teamed up together for over probably 25 years for one of the most tumultuous, brilliant relationships on, on and off the turf. Quite remarkable. When you were growing up with, with horses around you, was it, a, was it a glamorous upbringing or was it an upbringing you associated with hard graft? 
No, very much. It, it was first of all, uh, it was our life. And, you know, anyone watching the show who's been brought up in a stable with a parent that's involved in stable life, running a stable, knows that it's not glamorous. You know, it's, it's what you take as normal. You know, you go and you see the, the straw and, the, and the, the, the horse's droppings and you see the boys mucking it out or girls mucking it out and, uh, you know, the whole sort of life and blood of, of the stables is really about hard work and, and long, longish hours. Uh, and funny hours too, you know, very much sort of a, a person in uh, television would understand perfectly. That ability to combine selling horse racing as a show business essentially, but also applying those, that strict discipline, it's, is that been quite a difficult balance to strike? No, Dad was very much, <clears throat> to say he was a disciplinarian is wrong, but he was a very, uh, a person who uh, was very precise and, and uh, ran his life both on the course and off the course with great precision. You know, he was a very, he was a very brilliant person who had had basically no education at all. It's a funny story, he, he went to the school, he had to ride, I don't know, for, for so many miles to get there on his little pony. When he got there, he was late. And the teacher said, Smith, come up here and gave him the cane. And with that, Dad jumped out the window and ran away and never returned. And, you know, that was Dad's education all of three days in the Gulgawi school. And then he he really learnt and, and educated himself about the, the the business of the business of training racehorses. I, I read an interesting interview with you when somebody asked you whether you'd picked up a lot from your father, and you said, "No, I didn't pick up. I learned," which made me think that he, he was instilling in you the need to to learn for yourself, to figure out for yourself what what training was all about. Yes, well, you know, he was always there to, to teach me and guide me. And, and, you know, I used to go and have my pony in the stable, so I'd go in the morning, and I used to go as a small child with him to the track and ride in front of him on the, the baldy pony that was called Cornflakes. And we'd go out to the centre and he'd train the horses, and I don't know what I did, I can't remember, but I must have fiddled around. Up there. And then, uh, then he'd take me down to the beach, and we'd, they'd prop me up at the front of the boat, and they'd row out with the horses swimming behind at Coogee Beach. We don't do that. We still go to the beach but but not at Coogee anymore all the half naked boys and girls are there now uh, but it was fast fantastic you know it, it was and then we go after to Centennial Park which is a mini version of Hyde Park and we go looking for for ducks eggs in the the, the bushes you know in the, in the low grass around the, the ponds but of course the duck egg was an egg that mum had left out for him in the morning to put in his pocket and one day I must have bumped up against him and squashed the egg in his pocket and of course we never saw any more ducks eggs out <laughs> but he was fantastic that no, was great and just just in terms of the the actual mechanics of the training are you still applying those to your horses now decades on from what you learnt in the 1950s 60s 70s very much so, and some probably Dad would say not well enough. <laughs> but Adrian too. Adrian, he said, "Look, I, I want to learn what what you have here and what you have there." He said, "I want want to learn," and uh, so we're there bib and bubbing, and you know, I, I will say such and such, so and so, and chip in or or speak to him beforehand about a certain horse or uh, training. But yes, it's come. You know, when you've worked with the greatest. Why you don't have to? Why break the mould? The mould's perfect, and you know when you win 33 years consecutively of being champion trainer, unheard of in the world. When you win five Commonwealth records, six golden slippers, 43 derbies. I mean, uh, golly gosh, 
It just went on and on and on. He was a phenomenon. He'd done the 33 consecutive titles, then he lost it, but it was the getting it back after he'd, after he'd lost it, after the 33. That must take some sort of mental oh, huge, strength. Huge mental. And the stable had dwindled dramatically. You know, a lot of young trainers at the time had come on the scene. They were much sexier and they were younger. You know, you can't beat that, Nick. So they, these young trainers had come on the scene and Dad to come back in the 34th was an enormous effort and he knew that and he knew it would be his final shot and then it was gone, you know, the magic was gone. Uh, for you, great fortune to be his daughter, but in a sense also a great responsibility. How burdensome was that responsibility early? Or not at all? No, no, I didn't think it at all. I wanted, I wanted to train. I want fiercely uh, to, to train, and it's all I wanted to do. And uh, when he accepted that, which took a little bit of doing, because he just said, look, it's too hard, Gay. He said, it's just not for you, it's too hard. And he was right, it is hard. And it's got harder as the years have gone on, because, you know, there, there's uh, so many different trainers, there's, there's so many uh, different syndication groups, it's, it just goes on and on. But uh, he, uh, you know, he, he was great. He, when I did, he said, all right, he said, if you're going to apply for a licence, you apply for a number one licence. He said, start at the top. You never have to worry about going down, just start at the top. And, he, you know. and, and the whole business of you of you getting your license was an ordeal, which has been extremely well documented. But the way you attacked it was because you, you said that they weren't giving you a license because you were being discriminated against, because they were giving, not giving you a license because you were married to someone that they weren't approving of at the time, not because you were Gay Waterhouse because you were Gay Waterhouse. No, so after two and a half year legal battle uh, and I got the licence, it was granted to me, um, I then uh, took a while to start the horses and uh, I was picked up by one of the young stewards who said to me, you know, a funny bird, he said, you know, you took so long to get the licence, why haven't you raced your horses? And I said, I'm not going to race them till I can absolutely get all of you to sit up and pay attention. And, you know, I just trained winner after winner and, and, and I knew I had to do that. I knew I had to produce them. So so they could win so people would say my gosh this girl really can train you know I knew I had to make I was no good me just sliding into it because I would have slid out just as quickly luck on Sunday proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai Delighted to welcome back to Luck on Sunday, and she was here this very day last year, the chair of the Victoria Racing Club, responsible for the Melbourne Cup and so much more, Amanda Elliott. Amanda, good to see you. Your annual visit to Ascot, has it lived up to everything you hoped? It's been amazing. I was thinking, you know, amazing Ascot, remarkable royal meeting, trying to think of the monikers to attach <laughs> to this wonderful week. We talk about fabulous Flemington and marvellous Melbourne. So I had a chat with Sir Francis Brooke. Um, last night, trying to think about the, you know, the wonderful adjectives w or mm -hmm. we could apply to it. It was a fabulous week. Look, the weather was challenging. Um, I think that the second day, Wednesday, suffered more mm -hmm. from the weather, you know, than the first day did, and it put a bit of a dampener on the spirits. But Thursday, what a day! You know, glorious. The Gold Cup. Mm -hmm. uh, the sun came out. The crowds turned up. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. Stradivarius. Mm -hmm. Stradivarius was, was terrific. Was, was that your, your highlight of the week? Yes. I mean, I had probably, I don't know, six highlights of the week, but in terms of the race I was looking forward to most um, was certainly the Gold Cup. Yep. 
And is there an element of this week for you that is a, a recruitment drive, or is it simply a, an exchange of ideas, if you like, at the top level? I think it's more. I mean, we have we have a wonderful racing manager who who is more the recruiting of the horses, um, and he goes all around the world. Lee Jordan does a great job. Um, it's really more about the relationship that we have with Ascot in particular. Um, there are few great racing events, great weeks that transcend the racing population mm -hmm. and actually become part of the non-racing population as well. And uh, the Royal Meeting at Ascot and Melbourne Cup Week at Flemington do that very thing. And I think we celebrate that, you know, we celebrate that in Australia that, that the Melbourne Cup itself is the race that stops the mm -hmm. nation, but the week um, is, is everyone is engaged in Cup Week, like everyone is engaged in the Royal Meeting at Ascot. And those great events should never ever be sort of underestimated in their ability to do great things for racing, because racing needs to sell that message that it has many, many more touch points mm. than the glorious sport itself. And it can attract non-racing people as well as racing people. Uh, James, you said at the very beginning of this program that there wasn't much more Ascot could do in terms of the show. Putting no. on a show is something they've become extremely slick at doing. I think that um, big race courses around the world have benefited from each other. I watch an awful lot of Australian racing and even kind of like a middle ranking day at, uh, oh, I don't mean the middle ranking, in terms of the whole pantheon, say like your 20th or 30th best race, you can sit there and watch all eight races quite comfortably, yes. whereas we've not been so good at that here in the past. We, we, need, we need to develop kind of like the, the show a bit more, and Ascot I think is the zenith of what we've been able to achieve so far, but I still think there's more that can be done. Um, I still think we need to engage people better in terms of the betting product I think we're, we're, we're absurdly trying to we're failing to educate the, the public about betting properly uh, we, we're going to be left with a bunch of people that just don't know what they're doing um, in terms of the expertise that's been lost and we must preserve uh, either by an oral uh, tradition or by a more formally kind of running seminars or something on race days we must preserve the notion of, of the, the expertise an intellectual pursuit of horse racing, but the show is brilliant. I think it's a thin line that though um, the wagering thing, because absolutely I agree the education of people need to understand how to do it. But when we face the sort of um, welfare lobby and and the anti-gambling um, organisations yes, right. and that sort of thing, the challenge we need to sort of um, run the gauntlet between. Because racing is a lot more than betting, and it's a lot more than the sport itself. You know, so yeah. there's so much else attached to it. So very it's well a, point. I, I it's meant a balance. I expressed that badly because you're spot on with that. With that, I, I mean more the understanding of of what a race is, the technical understanding of a horse race, rather than the superficial understanding of it through Frankie de Tory. Isn't he great? Because the trouble with that is you don't get it all the time, do you? You no. only get it once every twenty no. years, and I think you need to replace it perhaps with a more a slightly more profound approach in some instances. So you need a hook for new fans, though. Mm. And sometimes the hook, especially in America, where sports gambling is massive, yeah, that is the hook for some. But mm. there's so much more uh, enticing aspects yeah. of the sport. And so I, I agree with both of you. Um, I've just noticed with 
friends of mine who are not involved in racing whatsoever, when they come to the track, they enjoy the entire pop and circumstance of it all. The incredible horse racing with the great food, with uh, not necessarily the fashion you see on display in Australia or at Royal Ascot, but the fact that they then know that they can possibly make some money on these horses. That is a, is a hook for some people. Um, but and they I don't think, understand it. It's I, confusing. Yeah. And I think in America, because the ownership of so many of the race courses are in the hands of casino operators yes. and that sort of thing, that the handle um, is and the wagering important. is incredibly important. Yeah. And I think, you know, that puts some people off. So mm -hmm. you know, um, we need to emphasize other things. Amanda, you've been quite um, outspoken in the in the press recently about the preservation of your your racing jewels in, in Australia, your preservation of the pattern particularly. Yes. Uh, and and, a, and a slightly railed against just parachuting valuable races in to, to disrupt that. It, it's interesting because evidently you're someone who is forward thinking and wants to sell the sport. So w what is wrong with putting all this money up for races and apropos of nothing? I don't have any problem with putting up money um, for these novelty or these pop-up races that don't have any um, black type sta status. What I have a problem with is when they impact what a group one Oh, this is spot on. Racing. Well spoken. Um, yeah. the, 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 pattern, spot on. the pattern of racing yeah. worldwide is yeah. so important, not just to the people who race horses, but to the breeding industry yeah. and to everyone. You cannot split horse populations within one jurisdiction and impact events like Cup Week, which has yeah. always had a responsibility for the brand of racing in Australia worldwide. Mm -hmm. And you cannot devalue the, the black type racing on these wonderful days by some novelty race worth a heap of money that connections then have to make a choice between, you know, and it all depends whether you want the money or whether you want the prestige or I am, vehemently against 15 out of 10 for that i mean we've got that problem here we've got 30 grand for a group three and a million for a handicap and stuff yeah it's it's just wrong and then we've got these sales races which take horses out of the some of the group races that's extremely well spoken. don't you, you agree with that do you i, I do i do agree yeah. with it i do agree with it and actually it, it applies domestically yeah but it applies internationally internationally yeah, when the does. european pattern was set up because people were racing horses against each other more trans in, in a trans-european context now we race horses e against each other globally because the world has become a smaller place yeah. so That's it becomes even more important even to more preserve important. a global pattern even more important and That's it's on. and it's and it's it, it really worries me because you know if we allow these things to happen um it just becomes the thin end of the wedge and then you know, what's to say you wouldn't get some, you know, billionaire or whatever deciding that, that a week in France up against the Royal Meeting at Ascot's a good idea and yeah. put a whole lot of money on exactly. it. becomes a complete nonsense. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.